Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of the Unbound and Rewound Horror Podcast where we dive deeper into every horror book and movie for a closer look at their bone-chilling anatomy. We are officially back in the US of A. It was so fun to travel and highlight some international films. My personal favorite was my Midsommar episode. If you didn't get a chance to listen, don't worry. That episode is live and waiting for your ears. We made it back home just in time for Pride Month, and do I have the lineup for you? This month is all about queer horror, though I will be interrupting it for the blackening. So make sure you're following me on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Your Horror Podcast for the latest horror content and podcast updates, such as what to expect for every new episode. So, before we get into any nitty-gritty of this week's episode, what are we streaming? What are we reading? What are we watching? The season finale of Yellow Jackets hit last week, and I'm still not emotionally recovered from it. If you are a Yellow Jackets fan, you know the heartbreak that we went through for that season finale. I know some people felt that it was a little underwhelming, Um, but I, and I mean, yeah, sure, but I think that this season really came to prove itself. Um, I mean, it was an amazing first season, and they had a lot, uh, to prove for second season, and I think they did a very good job. I'm very excited to see what comes from season three. Of course, that is at a standstill until the writer's strike comes to a successful end. So fingers crossed that they get what they deserve. Um, I also am still working on Succession, but I did start the, it's on MGM, I think. It's called From. Uh, It's this town that they can't leave, but people like will come into their town every now and then when they can't leave. But every night monsters come, so they have to like board up and everything. Um, So I'm a little... It's like I am looking forward to learning more. I feel like there's a lot of foundational stuff that's that's like um, like the first few episodes are just a lot of foundational work. So it takes a little bit for the hype to really build up, I guess, at least for me, like the momentum is just building up. But I feel like I don't know a lot about these people yet. Even We haven't gotten to the good parts yet, I guess. <laughs> I recently watched Mother for the first time. That might be a shocker to some of you because you know I love elevated horror and I do enjoy a Darren Aronofsky film every now and then. However, Mother was a unique experience that I don't know if I will be experiencing again. (laughs) That review is on my letterboxd, so if you're interested in, in hearing what I have to say about it, I actually... My review on Letterboxd for that movie is a silly, goofy one, so there really isn't, like, any substance to that review. But, in the case that you still want to look at it, or look at any of my other Letterboxd reviews, you can find that at Avery, C-O-F. Make sure you follow me, and uh, check out my reviews and my list that I have, too. So, this week, oh, and I, I'm still reading Plain Bad Heroines because I will be covering that this month on the podcast because it is a queer horror book. So, Stay tuned for that as well. My feelings on it are a little mixed currently, but hopefully I will reach the end of it soon. I will have a finalized opinion for you all. This episode that you are listening to right here 
is going to be laying down the framework for this entire month and hopefully moving forward if you frequent queer horror if you are um, if you consider yourself a part of the lgbtqia plus community and you're looking to get more into queer horror whatever the case is this is laying the framework for everything we're going to be talking about this month and moving forward on the podcast because uh hello this is an intersectional inclusive diverse podcast that you are listening to um, and so I decided to take a look at the history of queer horror and talk a little bit about how we got to where we are at currently with queer horror. And we're still even trying to make progress with it now. I mean, Mindy on Scream 5 and 6, it's like that's one of the first black queer main characters in a franchise that has not died you know so it's just like and she's not the bad she's not like the bad person either so we're still trying to make the progress that we seek however um you know it is really interesting to be able to look into the horror and look into like the universal monsters the the very like the very blueprints for all of the horror we have today and pinpoint exactly where the inspirations came from and even be able to you know look at the history of it and then watch your favorite movies with a different framework or a different lens and so before I get into talking about specific movies or anything I thought that it would be best to lay down uh, the history of queer horror in general and so if you're familiar with queer horror um, you may know vampires are famously gay, uh, and so I will be talking about them right here, right now, uh, but I also want to talk about Frankenstein, and there's like a lot of, there's a lot of things in the history of horror that are just really interesting. So the first notable display of queerness in film was the 1895 William Kennedy Dickinson motion picture, The Dickinson Experimental Sound Film, commonly labeled online and in three published books as The Gay Brothers. This wasn't an explicit display of gayness, though. It was just two men dancing together, having a fun time. But it was the subversion of conventional male behavior that shocked audiences. They liked to say that these men were dancing, uh, what do you, like, um, they were dancing like sissies, fanciful. They were dancing, they were dancing very, um, very, like, uh, f flamboyantly, and so they deemed them as gay. However, the first kiss between two men on screen occurs in the 1922 film Manslaughter. So, this is the first outwardly like homosexual activity on screen that we see the first kiss between two women took place in the 1930 morocco starring marlene dietrich this is the very first lesbian representation on screen which is crazy because i feel like there's a lot of lesbian erasure in the media already and so it's like like y'all still had representation back then wow where there was an introduction of certain legislation that kind of put a halt in this so one of the last questionably queer movies to hit screens 
was Charlie Chaplin's 1931 City Lights. The introduction of the Hayes Code set this framework for what film would look like for the next at, at least 30 years. Um, these were a set of guidelines enforced on filmmakers and studios between 1934 and 1968 after film and TV were determined to be excluded from the First Amendment. And so they they were like, oh, we don't have to we don't have to consider that your First Amendment right. Okay, great. So this is everything that you cannot do. The governance aimed to prohibit any films that would lower the moral standard of those who saw it. If this was still going on today, like if we had the Hays Code today, oh my god, yellow jackets would be banned. Like, they'd be afraid that people would turn into cannibals for watching it. <laughs> yellow jackets would not be made. With that, the sympathy of the audience should never be thrown to the side of crime, wrongdoing, evil, or sin. So they believed that film and TV had the power to influence the way that someone acted. Kind of how people believed, like in the 90s, that video games had the power to induce violence in its players. The Hays Code prohibited any suggestive or sexual content, as well as the overuse of substances and questioning of religion or law. The code was lifted after the head of the Motion Picture Association, MPA, suggested what we now know as the film rating system. So, thank you so much to that man for giving us the film rating system. Uh, you know, the NC-17, rated R, rated PG-13, because without that, we would probably still have the Hays Code, unfortunately. As I was talking about the first uh, explicitly gay representation on screen, um, you may be familiar with the term queer coding um, in TV, film, and literature as well. And so, as we go into talking about these horror icons and their gayness, I, <laughs> I want to establish the difference between something being queer-coded and something being explicitly gay, because that is very important when you're talking about just, like, queer representation in the media. So, despite the Hays Code being lifted... Queerness was still and has yet to be widely accepted in the media. After Stonewall, the first attempt to market a film to gay audiences was in 1970 with The Boys in the Band. Today, we still struggle to achieve whole and clear representation of queer characters, and so often we'll get a queer-coded character. For a character to be queer-coded, there's no clear depiction of queerness, whether that be romantic or personally. Villains, particularly, have been queer-coded. Many of them are Disney films. Uh, I don't know whether to thank the Disney adults for that or uh, beg them to stop, but particularly in horror as well. Their malign characteristics are only one way that they are often depicted as being quote-unquote other compared to the protagonist or town they terrorize. And so we'll talk about Frankenstein um, a little bit later in this episode, but that's just one example of like, you know, Frankenstein is seen as this other thing, this other 
being aside from the talent aside from humans and so they are alienated and it's very easy for people in the queer community to identify with that as harry binshoff said in his 1997 book while straight participants in such experiences usually return to their daylight worlds after a horror movie the monster and the homosexual are both residents to the shadowy spaces. I've never read this book, but this quote in particular made me want to read it. And so I will be purchasing it. It is in my cart, ready to buy. With all of that being said and laid down, I am now going to unveil my monsters. <laughs> but as I discuss these monsters, I want you to remember these films and stories were not always created from a place of good and progressive intention. They were usually and originally cautionary tales. By making these monsters, they made sexuality into one as well. I have to start with vampires because uh, I am a vampire girl through and through. And I like vampires is just the... Uh, I mean, yeah... Vampires are just the easiest to dissect in terms of queer because they are inherently sexual creatures and that's how they've always been. Um, and so when I say vampire, you may think of the recent Renfield or Twilight. We've seen variations of vampires for centuries through literature and film. Every culture around the world has their own distinct idea of what a vampire is. However, the first on-screen vampire is believed to be Nosferatu, 1922, though some studies have uncovered the possibility of earlier depictions in 1896. You might be familiar, if you haven't even seen the movie, you might be familiar with just what he looks like, uh, because he, there was a Spongebob episode, um, and he appeared in it one time, and it was so random but that's just always been stuck in the back of my mind. The director of Nosferatu, F.W. Murnau, is rumored to have been queer and created Count Orlok as a mirrored version of himself. The film and Count Orlok represents the male fears of women's liberation, the blatant expression of queerness, and the growing xenophobia surrounding Eastern immigrants and the Jewish people. When we talk about situations like this, like when we talk about uh, queerness in films or any kind of like, uh, I guess any kind of anything that can be pinpointed to social commentary, I always love to look at the history and what was happening at the time that that piece of media was being created because, you know, there... Uh, American history, French history, history in general, world history, it's always had such an influential mark on media. At this time in history, Germany had lost World War I and societal and political changes were taking place, resulting in women receiving more autonomy and queer culture slowly becoming public. When we understand this about Germany at the time of the film and the mind behind the story, the expressionistic style of the film and queer-coded interactions between Orlok and male protagonist Hutter make all the more sense. And I also really enjoy German expressionist um, films because they're just so, like, 
even if they're not made to be like creepy they still are there's another film that is a german expressionist movie and it's the cabinet of dr calgary i want to say that's what it is i had to watch it for a film class and i it's just so unsettling like the way because german expressionist film has a lot to do with the lighting and the angles in which the movie is made and so like it's just the shadows and where the darkness rests on people's faces and how it accentuates their are like scales back their features on their face there's something kind of haunting about it while Nosferatu is recognized to be the first vampire film uh, that we have seen it's not the first vampire story it was actually an unauthorized retelling of Bram Stoker's novel Dracula Bram Stoker like F.W. Murnau was suspected to be homosexual with the evidence being homoerotic letters exchanged between him and American poet Walt Whitman. One month before he began writing this story, Oscar Wilde, a close friend of his and writer of The Picture of Dorian Gray, which is another queer-coded horror novel, was arrested for homosexuality. I do think I heard somewhere that like there were these homoerotic letters between him and Walt Whitman, but then, like, he also had, um, he also had homophobic sentiments as well. Like, he publicly spoke out against homosexuality. So, I, that man was repressed. <laughs> that man was in denial. Um, and that's okay, you know, that's the first, that's the first stage is denial. A major theme in Dracula is the relationship between gender and sexuality, particularly at this time, the sexual depravity and dominance being demonstrated by the vampire women in Stoker's novel was considered exclusive for Victorian men, while their wives were expected to submit. However, in this story, it's the man who submits instead. By assuming this quote-unquote feminine role and fearing that he will be quote-unquote seduced, penetrated, and drained by another man, he is now homo-suspect number one. That's not gay to you? I just, whoa. Penetrated and drained is crazy. Between the novel and the movie, the relationship depicted between Dracula's servant Renfield and him also translate into more than just a working relationship. They were mixing work, business, and pleasure. And I, I, I mean, that's okay if that's, what, if that's what pleases you, that is fine. Just don't deny it. And that's exactly what they tried to do. <laughs> Renfield's undenying devotion to Dracula, the way he sucks his finger in front of Dracula. Yeah, Renfield has got a secret, and it is in the closet. Dracula is often recognized as one of the first, um, it's like one of the first notable vampire stories. But Bram Stoker, Bram Stoker was not original with that story, I must say. And it's just crazy how a man, how, wait, no, no, this is written, this is also written by a man. But anyways, that's another one of the problems. But anyways, Dracula would be nowhere if it weren't for Sheridan Le Fanu's 
1872 gothic novella Carmilla. For it to be one of the earliest vampire fiction works, you don't often hear about it. Why? Because it's gay. Lesbian, to be exact. However, the biggest flaw with this sapphic story is that it's written by a seemingly straight man. Can y'all believe that? The audacity of a straight man to actually, well, he really did set the, blue, set the blueprint for straight men fetishizing lesbians, I guess. Um, this results in the queerness of this story, though, being skewed. It's really hard to look at it as something of, of representation when it's not written by someone who can identify with it. In this story, the vampire Carmilla is a monster. Though it's an empowering story for women on different fronts, the fact that it's not written by someone who identified with the story almost makes it feel like a mockery. The men in the story are useless and provide no happiness or substance to the protagonist's life. However, Carmilla, who comes to offer just that, has to be destroyed for the protagonist's quote-unquote safety. They really should have just kissed and called it a day. I don't know. I feel like that would have been such a better ending. <laughs> For this story exactly, it hasn't gotten a proper film adaptation. Uh, it, there's a YouTube series. There's one movie I want to say that's like actually Carmilla. Like that is the movie. But it's it has not been adapted the way Dracula has been adapted. They're coming out with a new Nosferatu movie. It's, it should be this year that it comes out. That's been adapted. Where's the Carmilla adaptations? There's been a few, but just not by the title of the story. Um, but if you're looking to sink your teeth into a queer vampire show or movie this month, I do have some recommendations. The Hunger, which came out in 1984. It has David Bowie in it. And from what I hear, it's just a very artsy-fartsy, um, no-plot-just-vibes movie. And it's not even queer-coded, it's explicitly queer. Interview with a Vampire, not the one with Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt, because that one is queer-coded and barely. Like, like, the hintest bit of gay is in there. I'm talking about the 2022 series. Uh, that show was so good last year when I watched it, I was, I was addicted to it. Like, every, every week I was on my couch, sat, ready to consume every second of it. And so if you're looking for an explicitly queer vampire show, that would be the one you're looking for. And same thing with First Kill. First Kill, and it's such a tragedy because First Kill got canceled by Netflix because Netflix hates sapphic shows. But this show also came out in 2022, and it is a lesbian vampire movie, or not movie, a show, and it's about this. And it's also, you have a white protagonist, and you have a black protagonist, and they fall in love, but one of them, their family, are monster hunters, and the other, they are vampires. So it's like a Romeo and Juliet situation, um, but you have black representation, queer representation, everything you could want, and southern representation if that's your thing, because it takes place in Savannah, Georgia. Um, another recommendation I have, which is another southern representation, black representation, uh, honestly, just all, like, this, this show, for it to have come out in 2008, 
was very progressive. True Blood, I binged it last year, and what a great decision it was. Like I'm already, I'm already wanting to rewatch it because it was so good. And Lafayette, one of my all-time favorite characters in a show or movie, like the way that he delivered his lines, just the way he put his all into that performance. Oh my gosh, I one of my favorite shows. Uh, it there. It has like eight seasons, so it's like if you're really looking for something to binge, that would be your show. It ended in 2014, but they do have a podcast uh, where they like talk to people behind the scenes of the production and everything like that, so it's really cool. Uh, Renfield came out this year. It has Nicholas Holt and Nicholas Cage in it. It is, it's uh, like right in the middle of queer-coded and explicitly gay because you know, Renfield goes to couples, goes to, like, couples, or, like, um, what would you say, like, abusive relationship counseling, and he's, like, I'm in a toxic relationship, so it's, like, you know, it's, yeah, it's a little difficult, (laughs) and, but then at the same time, he dates a woman, so I would say maybe he's a bi-con, maybe he's a bisexual king on that front, and an honorable mention, because I can't forget this one, the 1987 Lost Boys. I love that movie. If anybody says it's not queer-coded, they're lying to you because uh, it is queer-coded because David had a crush on Michael, and he he wanted Michael to join his little, his little cult, and he didn't, and he got jealous when Michael went after the girl instead, and that makes it queer-coded to me. Moving on from vampires, sadly, uh, I'm moving on to Frankenstein. And Frankenstein, I was watching Queer for Fear. It's a series on Shudder, a very fantastic docuseries that I think everyone should check out because it's so informational. Uh, But they were talking about classic horror icons and they're like queer, queer coding. And so Frankenstein was a part of that. And if and I learned a lot from that episode, and so I wanted to bring that knowledge to you all. And so, if you're familiar with Mary Shelley's story of Frankenstein, it's a chest of themes and theories. Mary Shelley's own bisexuality makes the story's interaction with sexuality and gender even more apparent. Frankenstein is deemed to be the first true science fiction story which explores Victor Frankenstein, who discovers the secret to creating life. He uses this knowledge to form a hideous monster, which becomes the source of his misery and demise. This easily translates to a dysfunctional father-son relationship. However, it better represents the experience of a queer person. Queer audiences can easily empathize with the monster, as with most creature features, because of the alienation, hate, and abandonment they experience from people that deem them other. And so, similar to the monster, queer people are often forced to find solace in seclusion. You know what? Let me say this, because I really, for the longest time, I really did think Frankenstein was the monster, but it's not. (laughs) I had to read the book for a class, and I learned that Frankenstein is Victor Frankenstein and not the monster. The monster doesn't even have a name. And I feel like that's, that's even worse. You don't even give the monster a name. It's just the monster, the creature. Boo. 
but I do get it. I get why why he doesn't have a name, but it's just like so sad. He deserves <laughs> he deserves rights. <laughs> More specifically, though, it's easy for trans people to feel a certain camaraderie with the monster. As the monster is a product of medical science, so is gender reaffirming surgery. Now, more than ever, trans people may feel like they're living inside of Shelley's story with the anti-trans legislation and attitudes rising. This being said, please don't turn a blind eye to the ongoing erasure of the trans community. If you live in a state where these laws are being enacted upon, talk to your local government reps and give what you can to organizations actively fighting this genocide. For those living elsewhere, you can still donate and still talk to politicians as well. I will be linking some resources in the show notes for you to look into. And this should be going on all Pride Month. I mean, even outside of Pride Month, but now more than ever, like, this is the month to show. If you are not a part of the LGBTQIA community, this is your time to show your allyship, show that you care, show that you are showing up, you know? And if you are a part of the LGBTQIA plus community, it's a community. Be there for each other because that's, that's, that's what we're here for. On the other hand, Victor Frankenstein can be looked at through the queer lens as well. His desire to build a male companion, his repression of his emotions and replacing them with disgust upon the side of his male companion, his lack of interest in women, but instead his experiment who is made up of male limbs? The monster represents the result of same-sex consummation, specifically between men, because he is made up of a man and a man created him. And this is why Victor is fearful. It's like he... <laughs> it's like... He's like, ah, I'm gay, no! And he's he's scared. And I, I mean, you know, a lot of us feel that way. That's a very fair feeling to feel especially when uh, you have townspeople carrying pitchforks and trying to force you to be something you're not or forcing you just out of their community altogether. Frankenstein has been recreated over the decades, but my favorite rendition of it may be the, I think it's uh, 2002 movie May, as it is explicitly queer and equally campy. I did do a video on this for TikTok and I posted on my Instagram as well just kind of like reviewing it briefly um I I rated it pretty low I will say but when you're talking like in this lens in this aspect I really did enjoy it I you know when it comes to like a Frankenstein story I thought that it was really good and I also thought that compared to the original, like, to, compared to Mary Shelley's story, it was very, it matched up very well and it translated very well for this protagonist to be a bi woman. Yeah, if you haven't heard of that movie, um, definitely check it out if you're looking for more queer horror this month. And I hope that you took my other recommendations uh, to heart and you're adding them to your letterboxed watch list as we speak if you're looking for more queer horror i do have a letterboxed list um of things that I, I just add every now and then like when i watch something or when i hear of something new i'll add it to that list 
And currently, one of my favorite movies on that list right now is The Sound of Violence, which has Jasmine Savoy Brown in it. And it is, I personally want to say that it is explicitly queer. Um, I've only ever watched it once, but it definitely left its mark on me. But it's a very strange film. Um, if you've ever seen the, what's his name? Um, I don't know. He's scary. Anyways, if you've ever seen The House That Jack Built, it's it has similar sentiments to it. Um, yeah, I think everyone should watch it because it's really good. <laughs> and, of course, Jennifer's body, like... The this would not be a queer horror podcast episode if we didn't talk about Jennifer's body. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. I hope that I was able to teach you something that you didn't know about. I do hope that if you've seen any of the movies I talked about in this episode, uh, maybe you're able to watch them through a different lens, especially like the older movies. Maybe you know you've never seen Morocco with the first lesbian kiss, and you're like, "Ooh, let me watch that." or you know or may or the hunger you know if you're feeling a little little vibes only movie that might be perfect for you especially if you're a david bowie fan um so yeah definitely let me know how you feel about this episode if you would like me to continue um to shed light on other aspects of queer history in horror of course we just talked about like the classic monsters just in two of them to be exact uh, but if there was a specific movie that you wanted me to talk about in relations to queer coding or if you want me to talk about modern queer horror movies um, and do like a compilation episode that way you can beneath this episode there is like a Q&A where the show notes are there is a Q&A section where it says like oh what did you think of this episode and you can type out a response there and um you know tell me what you thought of the episode so if you liked what you heard or if you feel like i could have shed light on something else definitely let me know in that in that little section on spotify if you're listening um if you're not listening on spotify you can always reach out via twitter instagram or tiktok to let me know my messages on tiktok are open and so you can uh, message me whenever and also on Instagram too. Um, I do have a little bonus special episode coming out this upcoming Monday. It is my interview with Bomani J. Story and Leia DeLeon Hayes for the Angry Black Girl and Her Monster. And so you don't want to miss that because that is my very first interview with a director and actress on this podcast and in my life. So, I want everyone who's listening to this episode, and I also want any, like, if you're listening to this episode, I want you to listen to the interview and then send it to one person to listen to as well. Especially if you love black horror movies, share it with somebody else who you know loves black horror movies because that's what, that's exactly what we talk about. We talk about black horror, we talk about being black in Hollywood. Leia DeLeon Hayes spits facts when when she talks about her experience being in Hollywood and so I think it's gonna be it's it's such a great interview such a great episode I'm very proud of myself for the questions that I asked and just the way that I conducted the episode but I'm also just really really grateful that I even had the opportunity to begin with um 
And yeah, so I really want I really want everyone to get a chance to listen to it, um, to those who can listen to it. Um, so yeah, that's coming out on Monday. Make sure that you do keep up with me on social media at you are horror podcast because this is your horror podcast i guess that's all i have for you all um thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode and i'll catch you next week bye get your phd in black cinema sister soldier listen i read my entertainment weekly okay i know my shit